Nice to see you all this morning, and welcome again to Hamilton Baptist Church. Give me a second here. Thank you, Nathan, for leading us this morning, and also to the musicians and singers for leading us in worship. It's good to have that sense of God's presence as they bring us into God's presence in worship by singing and rejoicing in him. It's been really good to be studying uh, the books of John, or this book of John, over the past 11 Sundays, and to have taken time to set the scene, to understand the background, and enter into Jesus' ministry with his disciples as they have embarked upon their journey of faith and understanding with him. If you've been writing in your journal edition of John's Gospel, you'll have already created a worthwhile set of notes to this point, so please continue to take those notes if you find them helpful. It's important to remind ourselves, again, of the purpose of John's Gospel, found in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It was so helpful to hear Derek Malcolm's brief review last Sunday of the journey so far. So just to briefly to reiterate, chapter 1 opens with those amazing theological statements affirming Jesus as the eternal Word of God, deity incarnate. Further into the chapter, we saw John the Baptist who points us to Jesus. As we progress through the chapter, we watch Jesus as he calls his first disciples, Andrew and Peter, Philip and Nathaniel. Then in chapter 2, we see Jesus operating on two very different levels. Firstly, in gentle and kindly support, he performs his first recorded miracle as he turns water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, mercifully saving the bridal family from embarrassment and dishonor. Secondly, in controlled and godly anger, he rids the temple of those who had turned God's house of prayer into a den of thieves by establishing themselves as profiteers and money makers at the expense of ordinary God-fearing people who needed to purchase an offering for their visit to the temple. And chapter 3 introduces us to Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus by night with theological questions and who reappears at Jesus' death in chapter 19, verse 39, to prepare his body for burial. In chapter 3, we have what is probably the most famous and best-known verse in Scripture, John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In chapter 3, Derek described Jesus in Judea, where his disciples were baptizing in the same area as John the Baptist. And we heard how John was happy for his disciples to leave him in order to follow Jesus. For he saw himself as the best man in the wedding party, with Jesus the bridegroom and his people, the church, his bride. In verse 30 of this chapter, we have that first statement by John the Baptist, that famous statement by John the Baptist, he must become greater, and I must become less. And this morning, we come to chapter 4 of John's Gospel, and I've invited Liz Leggett to read the passage for us. So Liz, if you'd like to come forward now, please, and read. Thanks. Thanks very much. John chapter 4, Jesus talks with a Samaritan woman. 
Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it wasn't Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want? Or 
why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in, him, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Amen. Thank you, Liz. That's a long reading. Why do you think I asked Liz to do it for me? Thanks. As we come to this chapter on Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's worth noting, firstly, that the Apostle John makes it clear that it was Jesus' disciples who were baptizing and not Jesus himself. Jesus wanted to avoid any possible trouble with John's disciples who were disconcerted by his growing popularity. And since the Pharisees were also focusing on his growing influence, Jesus decided to leave Judea and return to Galilee in order to avoid any conflict. Here you can see the regions of Judea and Galilee, some 90 miles apart. Notice that verse 4 tells us he had to go through Samaria. There are, of course, at least two routes that Jesus could have taken to avoid going through Samaria. But Jesus chose to take the central route, which was the shortest and the quickest route, which took him right through the center of Samaria and brought him to the town of Sychar. John MacArthur's notes give a helpful influence, give a helpful rather insight here. Even with the strong antipathy between Jews and Samaritans, the Jewish historian Josephus relates that the custom of the Judeans at the time of the great festivals was to travel through the country of the Samaritans because it was the shorter route. Although the verb needed may possibly refer to the fact that Jesus wanted to save time and needless steps because of the gospel's emphasis 
on the Lord's consciousness of fulfilling his father's plan, the apostle may have been highlighting divine spiritual necessity. That is, Jesus had an appointment with divine destiny in meeting the Samaritan woman to whom he would reveal his messiahship. Before we come to the details of this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, it's important that we understand some very significant cultural, religious, and historical contexts. Firstly, the attitudes of Jewish men towards women. And secondly, the antipathy between Jews and Samaritans. You don't have to dig very deep to discover that Jewish teaching on how men should relate to women was very different from recognized Western norms. Equality of the sexes has been around in the UK since the 60s with a much more clearly defined set of criteria today, and rightly so. In official Judaism, however, men were legally possessions of their fathers and after marriage of their husbands. Also, a wife was acquired in virtually the same way as property. In light of this, men wouldn't lower themselves to speak to women, yet Jesus speaks to this woman. The second cultural and historical background to be aware of was the antipathy, even hatred, between Jews and Samaritans. Once again, MacArthur's notes shed helpful light on this background. Let me quote and add a couple other thoughts as well. When the nation of Israel split politically after Solomon's rule, King Omri named the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel Samaria, 1 Kings 16, verse 24. The name eventually referred to the entire district and sometimes to the entire northern kingdom, which had been taken captive, with the capital being Samaria, taken captive by Assyria in 722 BC. That's found in 2 Kings 17, the first six verses. While Assyria had led most of the populace of the northern ten northern tribes away into the region which today is northern Iraq, it left a sizable population of Jews in the northern Samaritan region, and they transported many non-Jews into Samaria. These groups intermingled to form a mixed race through intermarriage, which led to incorporating some of the invaders' religious practices into the religion of Abraham. Eventually, tension developed between the Jews who had returned from captivity and the Samaritans. The Samaritans withdrew from the worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem and established their worship at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. That's verses 20 to 22. Samaritans regarded only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as authoritative. As a result of this history, the Samaritans regarded the Jews as arrogant and deluded, The Jews regarded the Samaritans as heretics. Samaritans and Jews would easily recognize each other by their different accents and the dissimilar style of clothes. Thus, as Jesus sat down beside Jacob's well at the base of the mountain where the the Samaritan temple had once stood, the Samaritan woman's hackles would have risen seeing a Jewish man sitting by the side of the well. She would presume the Jewish stranger would sneer and turn away from her. She, in turn, would ignore him. It's into this profoundly disturbing cultural, historical, and religious backdrop that Jesus makes his journey into Samaria and into the life of this Samaritan woman. 
And so now we come to the conversation between Jesus and this woman. Notice first that the time is about noon, according to the Jewish way of noting the time, a time when women don't normally come to draw water. They would usually come in the cool of the morning or the evening, not in the heat of the midday sun. However, this woman didn't want to meet anyone, possibly for fear of embarrassing conversations or in case she was made to feel ostracized. So she came in the heat of the day. Also, this is the only mention of Jacob's well in Scripture, although its precise location has been set by a firm tradition among Jews, Samaritans, Muslims, and Christians, and lies today in the shadow of the crypt of an unfinished Orthodox church. Jesus starts the conversation with the simple question, will you give me a drink? I'll just take one. To us, this doesn't seem odd at all. I mean, after all, the woman had the bucket and the means to collect water, and Jesus was thirsty after a long walk in a very hot day. And aside here, this clearly indicates Jesus' human nature. For after taking that long walk in the heat of the day, he became thirsty and tired, as the text tells us. So for Jesus to speak in this way to this woman showed an astonishing break from culture and tradition. For the woman, this was an unexpected request, as verse 9 shows, for two reasons. Firstly, because she was a Samaritan. And secondly, because she was a woman. And she knew what Jewish men thought of women, far less a Samaritan woman. So let's have a look at the conversation. Jesus comes straight to the point. Much like we saw a couple of studies ago in chapter 3 with Nicodemus. He says to this woman in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Here Jesus references part of the Old Testament that the Samaritans didn't hold as authoritative. For the theme of living water was, was used by the prophets Jeremiah and Zechariah. And then later in the gospel, Jesus again references himself as the source of living water. Let me read Jeremiah 17, verse 13, that short passage. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And twice in that verse, the Lord is referred to by his eternal name, the great I am, the name Yahweh, because it is all capitalized. And so at the very outset of this conversation, Jesus, pointing to himself as the living water, implies he is the Lord Almighty, God incarnate. This is an incredible statement to make at this point. Right at the start, Jesus wants this woman to understand that only he is able to provide what she truly needs, which isn't water to drink, but the water of life, the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. But the woman doesn't understand. <clears throat> She's confused. So she refers firstly to the only thing she understands so far, and that's that Jesus doesn't have the necessary means to draw water, and the well is deep. So where can he get this water from? And then it's almost as if 
Some of what Jesus said seems to dawn on her. She asks in verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? She seems to not quite believe what she's saying, but she says it anyway. She can't figure out who Jesus is. She's confused about his identity. Who is this man who's standing speaking to her? So Jesus tries to clarify her thinking by making clearer statements. Verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well possibly, will be, a thirsty, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. He's speaking about the activity of the indwelling Holy Spirit. To those who place their faith in him, he gives an abundant and vigorous life. Notice in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus is clearly saying that he is the giver of that abundant life, that indwelling Holy Spirit who comes from God Almighty and for which he requires no well and no bucket. But the woman has been caught off guard. After all, she's only come to draw water. She didn't know she would encounter the author and sustainer of the cosmic universe in this midday walk to the well. It's hardly surprising this woman is still in a confused state, although she clearly wants what Jesus has to offer. Look at verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She wants this miraculous water for a wholly practical human reason. And that is, she doesn't want to have to keep coming back for water if this water will forever quench her thirst. She's still confused, but she's interested. Let's pause for a moment and let me ask you, if you see yourself like this woman, just a little bit. Perhaps you're not regular at church or you're here with friends or family or you're watching online. And you're a bit confused with all this Jesus stuff. You wish he'd talk in plain English rather than speak about all this living water stuff. Or maybe you've been attending church for years, but you still don't fully understand all that you hear. And the scripture isn't always clear to you. That's why you haven't signed up for growth groups. You don't want to go in case you're asked a question you don't know the answer to. Well, don't be worried. No one should embarrass you. What you need to do is ask the Holy Spirit to reveal Jesus to you as you read the Bible. For it is God's holy and living word, and he wants to speak to each one of us through its pages. And that's exactly what I believe is happening here today as we open and read this passage about this amazing encounter between Jesus and this fearful Samaritan woman. Here is a Samaritan woman one who lived on the periphery of society, and Jesus stops to speak to her. Jesus wants to talk to you today. He meets with you in the everyday routine of life. For this woman, it was time to draw water, and there was Jesus. For you, it may be that you've just come to church today, or you're watching online, and here's Jesus to talk to you. For here on, from here on, things move up a gear as Jesus gets personal. He tells the woman to go and call her husband and come back, but he knows all about her. 
and that she has no husband. In fact, Jesus knows so much about her that he knows she has had five husbands and the man she's currently living with is not her husband. The Jews held that a woman could be divorced maybe twice or at the most three times. If the Samaritans held the same standard, this woman's life had been extremely immoral. Yet here is Jesus spending time talking with her. Who is this man who destroys every barrier and who tramples every taboo? What is it about him that makes him so interesting and captivating to listen to? Well, this Samaritan woman is still not ready to accept the significance of Jesus' identity, despite the fact that he clearly knows all about her. So he tries to do what Nicodemus, so she tries to do what Nicodemus did, which was to sidestep the main issue by in, entering into a theological debate about the correct place to worship God. The proper place of worship had long been a source of debate between the Jews and Samaritans. Samaritans held that this mountain, Mount Gerizim, was especially sacred. Abraham and Jacob had built altars in the general vicinity, and you'll find that in Genesis 12, 6, and 33, 18. And the people had been blessed from this mountain, Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 27. In the Samaritan scriptures, Mount Gerizim, rather than Mount Ebal, was the mountain on which Moses had commanded an altar to be built. However, in Deuteronomy 27, verses 4 to 6, it clearly states that Mount Ebal was the mountain on which they were to build an altar. The Samaritans had built a temple on Mount Gerizim about 400 BC, which the Jews destroyed about 500 years later. Both actions, of course, increased hostility between these two groups. And Jesus responds in grace to her attempt at a confused, antagonistic debate by pointing out that the Samaritans come to the worship of God from a different position, from a position, basically, of ignorance. They worship the true God, but their failure to accept much of his revelation meant that they knew little about him. In saying salvation is from the Jews, Jesus is pointing out that the Messiah would come from God's historic people and that true worshippers are those who worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. Verse 23. Finally, the woman plays her last card. She's still not sure who Jesus is, and she reasoned that the matter was too important for people like Jesus and her to work out. Understanding would have to wait for the coming of the Messiah. But since the Samaritans rejected all the inspired writings after the Pentateuch, this woman knew very little about him. She probably thought, him, thought of him as mainly as a teacher. Hearing this, Jesus decided to bring total clarity. So again, he speaks clearly to this woman in this statement, which is the only occasion before his trial on which Jesus specifically said, that he was the Messiah, and he simply says, I am he. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am he. I am he who wants to come alongside you in your everyday routine of life. I am he who can dispel your confusion. I am he who can give you hope in the midst of despair. 
I am he who can forgive your sins. I am he who alone can save you. I am he who can give you eternal life. I am he who is the answer to all of your questions. I am he who is the yes and the amen to all of your needs. I am he for whatever you need today and for all eternity. You know, as I thought more about this woman and her position, it struck me about the number of times she'd been married and I imagine divorced. You could be more divorced once, maybe twice, but once is a mistake, two is a habit. What's three, what's four, and what's five? And they say getting married is like gluing two pieces of paper together. And when you divorce, you try to tear those apart and there's a ripping and there's a pain. And no one person is right 100% and the other one wrong 100%. And there's a pain in that situation. Can you imagine the pain that woman was feeling after five broken marriages? And no wonder she came at the heat of the day to to that well to draw water because she was terrified of meeting people who would perhaps abuse her verbally or would turn their faces away from her. And I wonder as you come to church today what kind of pain you may be feeling within your own life. Yeah, perhaps you put on the Sunday face or the Sunday clothes and it looks fine. But God knows what's going on in the heart and he understands the pain and perhaps the confusion and the uncertainty and the fear. And it's incredible as we look at this passage that this was the woman Can you imagine all the village that she came from and of all the people who were in that village and some perhaps weren't so good and others were quite good and and some were quite bad and I'd imagine she was, in their eyes, pretty low, pretty near the bottom of the pile. And Jesus said, I must go to Samaria because I must meet that woman. And I wonder today if Jesus has come today to you and you've come today and there's a must-meet situation going on. And perhaps in your own life's experience, there's pain and there's hurt and there's anxiety and there's a a self-disgust because of what you've been involved in and what your life has consisted of and where you've ended up. And you're the very one today Jesus wants to speak to. And he comes to you and to me in our need. And he says, I am he. I am he. Don't look any further. Don't look at the broken society you've come from. Don't look at all, the, all those who stand high on, on, on the, the, the altar of human um, aggrandizement. Look at the bottom of the pack. Look at the bottom of the pile, the dirt. That's where Jesus came. And I wonder today where you feel you are. Perhaps you think you're really high. You've made it. You've gained in society. You've made a good career for yourself. But perhaps even behind all of that, you know deep within now there's something deeply wrong. And I simply want to say to you, Jesus comes to you today and to me. And he says, I am he. I am the one who can meet your need. I am the one who 
sent my son, or in fact, I am the one who will die for you. I will give my perfect life on the cross for you to become God's perfect, sinless sacrifice. As John the Baptist said, here, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I'm that Lamb. I'm he. I'm going to be offering myself on that cross because there's no one else good enough. And I'm coming to you today and I'm offering something that you don't have and that you need. And just then, as they were having that conversation, it's as if the camera pans towards his disciples as they return from their shopping trip, verse 8, because they'd gone to town to buy food. And they're amazed when they return to find him talking to a woman. And by the time the camera pans back to the woman, in that moment, things change. Things happen for that woman. She is filled with a new hope and anticipation. Leaving her water jar, she runs off to the village. Well, it doesn't say it runs, but I imagine she would have run. And she shouts an exaggerated statement. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Jesus had impacted her life. Her question Could this be the Messiah? Seems full of longing, as she thought she'd expect them to say yes. But clearly, she could not say no. And so it is with every person who encounters the Lord Jesus. He never leaves you the way he meets you. If you truly meet with him, he'll change you. The wonderful thing is that he accepts you just the way you are. In all your confusion and fear and sinfulness, he meets us in our need. But he doesn't leave us there. No, he changes us. He makes us new. And so the call went out from the woman. Come, see a man. And people responded and began to make their way towards the well where Jesus was. Meanwhile, his disciples are concerned for his well-being and they urge him to eat. But he reminded them what sustained him was not merely food, For the body, but food for the soul. To do the will of him who sent me. And to finish his work, said Jesus to his disciples. And then he called his disciples to look at the harvest in front of them. Perhaps it was a sea of white robes flowing toward him as people streamed out of the village that gave Jesus the picture of the fields ripe for harvest. The call is there for you and for me today as we consider the fields ripe for harvest. We need to be bold to actually believe Jesus when he says, I am he. And take that message of hope to those who need to hear. Come and see a man, the man Jesus Christ, who that day demolished the walls of oppression to free a woman bound by her own sin and unable to free herself. Today you can be free too. If you are willing to not only meet Jesus, but to listen to him and trust him when he says, I am he. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we bow before you and are amazed that you want to come to us. We thank you for this incident recorded by John of this poor woman who was on the periphery of society full of fear because of what people thought about her. And yet Jesus came and met with her. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus, 
We thank you for his willingness to leave all of heaven's glory. And we thank you that he stepped into our world to show us who you are, to live life on our behalf, and to die the death that we ought to die so that we don't need to. And to receive from him that gift of forgiveness, the gift of cleansing from our sin, the gift of new life, the gift of eternal life with you. Thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.